Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is, without a doubt, the most unusual episode of the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, featuring eight short sci-fi stories for you by Frederick Brown, Ray Bradbury, Harry Fletcher, Isaac Asimov, and Philip K. Dick. That's next on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode. A few weeks ago, Blind Voyager said, and I quote, It would be fun to do an episode of several short, very short, sci-fi stories. Well, thanks for your request, Blind Voyager. And today's episode would never have happened if not for you. I came across several interesting short stories months ago, but it's tough to sell a four-minute audiobook. And the thought of a super short podcast didn't appeal to me either. However... When we got the request from Blind Voyager, the light bulb went on, and I began planning today's podcast. After you have a chance to listen, and you will want to listen all the way to the end, let us know what you think by commenting, and tell us if we should do another episode of the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast with several super short sci-fi stories. You can always send us an email, scott at lostsci-fi.com. Our first story today can be found in the June 1960 edition of Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, Earthmen Bearing Gifts by Frederick Brown. Dar Rai sat alone in his room meditating. From outside the door, he caught a thought wave equivalent to a knock, and glancing at the door, he willed it to slide open. It opened. Enter, my friend, he said. He could have projected the idea telepathically, but with only two persons present, speech was more polite. Ejon Key entered. You are up late tonight, my leader, he said. Yes, Key, 
Within an hour, the earth rocket is due to land, and I wish to see it. Yes, I know it will land a thousand miles away, if their calculations are correct, beyond the horizon. But if it lands even twice that far, the flash of the atomic explosion should be visible. And I have waited long for first contact, for even though no Earthman will be on that rocket, it will still be first contact for them. Of course, our telepath teams have been reading their thoughts for many centuries, but this will be the first physical contact between Mars and Earth. Key made himself comfortable on one of the low chairs. True, he said. I have not followed recent reports too closely, though. Why are they using an atomic warhead? I know they suppose our planet is uninhabited, but still, they will watch the flash through their lunar telescopes and get a, what do they call it? A spectroscopic analysis that will tell them more than they know or think they know. Much of it is erroneous about the atmosphere on our planet and the composition of its surface. It is, call it a sighting shot key. They'll be here in person within a few oppositions. And then Mars was holding out, waiting for Earth to come. What was left of Mars, that is. This one small city of about 900 beings. The civilization of Mars was older than that of Earth, but it was a dying one. This was what remained of it. One city, 900 people. They were waiting for Earth to make contact, for a selfish reason, and for an unselfish one. Martian civilization had developed in a quite different direction from that of Earth. It had developed no important knowledge of the physical sciences, no technology. But it had developed social sciences to the point where there had not been a single crime, let alone a war on Mars, for 50,000 years. And it had developed fully the parapsychological sciences of the mind, which Earth was just beginning to discover. Mars could teach Earth much, how to avoid crime and war to begin with. Beyond those simple things lay telepathy, telekinesis, empathy. And Earth would, Mars hoped, teach them something even more valuable to Mars, how, by science and technology, which it was too late for Mars to develop now, even if they had the type of minds which would enable them to develop these things, to restore and rehabilitate a dying planet so that an otherwise dying race might live and multiply again. Each planet would gain greatly, and neither would lose. And tonight was the night when Earth would make its first sighting shot. Its next shot, a rocket containing Earthmen, or at least an Earthman, would be at the next opposition, two Earth years, or roughly four Martian years hence. The Martians knew this because their teams of telepaths were able to catch at least some of the thoughts of Earthmen, enough to know their plans. Unfortunately, at that distance, the connection was one way. Mars could not ask Earth to hurry its program or tell Earth scientists the facts about Mars' composition 
and atmosphere, which would have made this preliminary shot unnecessary. Tonight, Rye, the leader, as nearly as the Martian word can be translated, and Key, his administrative assistant and closest friend, sat and meditated together until the time was near. Then they drank a toast to the future, in a beverage based on menthol, which had the same effect on Martians as alcohol on Earthmen, and climbed to the roof of the building in which they had been sitting. They watched toward the north, where the rocket should land. The stars shone brilliantly and unwinkingly through the atmosphere. In Observatory Number One on Earth's moon, Raj Everett, his eye at the eyepiece of the spotter scope, said triumphantly, Darcy Blue, Willie, and now, as soon as the films are developed, we'll know the score on that old planet Mars. He straightened up. There'd be no more to see now. And he and Willie Sanger shook hands solemnly. It was an historical occasion. Hope it didn't kill anybody. Any Martians, that is. Rog, did it hit dead center and Certus Major? Nears matters. I'd say it was maybe a thousand miles off to the south. And that's damn close on a fifty million mile shot. Willie, do you really think there are any Martians? Willie thought a second and then said, no, he was right. That's Earthmen Bearing Gifts by Frederick Brown. Up next, another story by Brown, which first appeared in Fantastic Science Fiction Stories in August 1960, The House. He hesitated upon the porch and looked a last long look upon the road behind him and the green trees that grew beside it, and the yellow fields, and the distant hill, and the bright sunlight. Then he opened the door and entered, and the door swung shut behind him. He turned as it clicked and saw only blank wall. There was no knob and no keyhole, and the edges of the door, if there were edges, were so cunningly fitted into the carven paneling that he could not discern its outline. Before him lay the cobwebbed hallway. The floor was thick with dust, and through the dust wound two so slender curving trails as might have been made by two very small snakes or two very large caterpillars. They were very faint trails, and he did not notice them until he was opposite the first doorway to the right upon which was the inscription Semper Fidelis in Old English lettering. Beyond this door he found himself in a small red room, no larger than a large closet. A single chair in this room lay on its side, one leg broken and dangling by a thin splinter. On the nearest wall the only picture was a framed portrait of Benjamin Franklin. It hung askew and the glass covering it was cracked. There was no dust upon the floor, and the room appeared to have been recently cleaned. In the center of the floor lay a bright curved scimitar. There were red stains upon its hilt, and upon the edge of the blade was a thick coating of green ooze. Aside from these things, the room was empty. After he had stood in this room for a long time, he crossed the hallway and entered the room opposite. It was large, the size of a small auditorium. 
but the bare black walls made it seem smaller at first glance. There was row upon row of purple plush theater seats, but there was no stage or platform, and the rows of seats started only a few inches from the blank wall they faced. There was nothing else in the room. But upon the nearest seat lay a neat pile of programs. One of these he took and found it blank, save for two advertisements on the back cover, one for prophylactic toothbrushes and the other for choice building lots in the Sub Rosa subdivision. Upon a page near the front of the program, he saw that someone had written with a lead pencil the word, or name, Garfinkel. He thrust the program into his pocket and returned to the hallway along which he walked in search of the stairs. Behind one closed door which he passed, he heard someone, obviously amateur, picking out tunes on what sounded like a Hawaiian guitar. He knocked upon this door, but a scurrying of footsteps and silence was the only answer. When he opened the door and peered within, he saw only a decaying corpse hanging from the chandelier, and an odor hurled itself upon him so nauseating that he closed the door hastily and walked on to the stairway. The stairway was narrow and winding. There was no banister, and he hung close to the wall as he ascended. He saw that the first seven steps from the bottom had been scrubbed clean, but in the dust above the seventh step he saw again the two winding trails. Upon the third step from the top they converged and vanished. He entered the first door to his right and found himself in a spacious bedroom, lavishly furnished. He crossed immediately to the carven poster bed and pulled aside the curtains. The bed was neatly made, and he saw a slip of paper pinned to the smooth pillow. Upon it was written hastily in a woman's handwriting, Denver, 1909. Upon the reverse side, neatly written in ink in another handwriting, was an algebraic equation. He left this room quietly and stopped short just outside the door to listen to a sound that came from behind a black doorway across the hall. It was the deep voice of a man chanting in a strange and unfamiliar tongue. It rose and fell in a monotonous cadence like a Buddhist hymn, yet over and over recurred the word Ragnarok. The words seemed vaguely familiar, and the voice sounded like his own voice, but muffled by many things. With bowed head he stood until the voice died away into a blue trembling silence, and twilight crept into the hallway with the stealthiness of a practiced thief. Then, as though awakening, he walked along the now silent hallway until he came to the third and last door and he saw that they had printed his name upon the upper panel in tiny letters of gold. Perhaps radium had been mixed with the gold, for the letters glowed in the hallway's dimness. He stood for a long moment with his hand upon the knob, and then at last he entered and closed the door behind him. He heard the click of the latch and knew that it would never open again. Yet he felt no fear with this realization. The darkness was a black, tangible thing that sprang back from him when he struck a match. He saw then that the room was a counterpart of the east bedroom of his father's house near Wilmington, 
the room in which he had been born. He knew now just where to look for candles. There were two in the drawer and the stump of a third, and he knew that burned one at a time they would last for almost ten hours. He lighted the first and stood it in the brass bracket on the wall, from whence it cast dancing shadows from each chair, from the bed, and from the small waiting cradle that stood beside the bed. Upon the table, beside his mother's sewing basket, lay the March 1887 issue of Harper's Magazine, and he took it up and glanced idly through its pages. At length he dropped it to the floor and thought tenderly of his wife, who had died many years ago, and a faint smile trembled upon his lips as he remembered a dozen little incidents of the years of days and nights they had spent together. He thought, too, of many other things as the minutes went by. It was not until the ninth hour, when but half an inch of candle remained and darkness began to gather in the farther corners of the room and to creep closer, that he screamed and beat and clawed at the door until his hands were a raw and bloody pulp. That's The House by Frederick Brown. And now, our last Frederick Brown story for today, from Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine in 1954, Experiment. The first time machine, gentlemen, Professor Johnson proudly informed his two colleagues. True, it is a small-scale experimental model. It will operate only on objects weighing less than three pounds five ounces and for distances into the past and future of twelve minutes or less. But it works. The small-scale model looked like a small scale, a postage scale, except for two dials in the part under the platform. Professor Johnson held up a small metal cube. Our experimental object, he said, is a brass cube weighing one pound, 2.3 ounces. First, I shall send it five minutes into the future. He leaned forward and set one of the dials on the time machine. Look at your watches, he said. They looked at their watches. Professor Johnson placed the cube gently on the machine's platform. It vanished. Five minutes later, to the second, it reappeared. Professor Johnson picked it up. Now, five minutes into the past, he set the other dial. Holding the cube in his hand, he looked at his watch. It is six minutes before three o'clock. I shall now activate the mechanism by placing the cube on the platform at exactly three o'clock. Therefore, the cube should, at five minutes before three, vanish from my hand and appear on the platform five minutes before I place it there. How can you place it there, then? asked one of his colleagues. It will, as my hand approaches, vanish from the platform and appear in my hand to be placed there. Three o'clock. Notice, please. The cube vanished from his hand. It appeared on the platform of the time machine. See? Five minutes before I shall place it there, it is there. His other colleague frowned at the cube. But, he said, what if, now that it has already appeared five minutes before you place it there, you should change your mind about doing so, 
and not place it there at three o'clock. Wouldn't there be a paradox of some sort involved? An interesting idea, Professor Johnson said. I had not thought of it, and it will be interesting to try. Very well, I shall not. There was no paradox at all. The cube remained. But the entire rest of the universe, professors and all, vanished. Let's go back to October 1944. You could buy Super Science Stories for 15 cents. And if you did, you would have found And Then The Silence by Ray Bradbury. We let them come in. They set their long silver ships down in the valleys, on the plateaus and plains. We let them come in without moving against them. All of us watched and waited and communicated to ourselves about the invaders. It was almost a joke. We knew they were coming. Yes, we knew. We heard them coming across space. We counted 1,000 of their projectiles shooting through the void. They were running away from something. They had to run. Their planet, which they called Earth, was no longer habitable. They built ships and escaped from Earth before it was too late. We all saw them land, and we heard the vibration of their sharp, unthinking words. They had a leader a tall man with lean steel shoulders and a white, quiet face. He spoke to his people about the trip, the sacrifice, the new world to live upon. The scale of his voice vibration was this. We are here through the grace of God. We have surmounted incredible obstacles and found our new world. We are indeed fortunate that this new world is uninhabited. It is good that we need not fight alien peoples for the right to land here. We have come down in peace upon a light green paradise, where there is nothing but the sound of air, light and earth, of water and winds and mountains. We didn't particularly want to kill this man. His name was Monroe, but we knew he would have to pay the penalty of being one of his kind. It was the other man who was an irritant, a fleshy molecule of quick, bitter incorrigibility. Sure, sure, he said rapidly. This is a setup. No Indians to fight, no Germans dive-bombing us. A sweet setup. Why, listen, Monroe, in six months we can have this dinky hunk of earth revamped into a damn fine facsimile of New York, Chicago, and all points west. Watch our steam. The other humans made loud cheering noises. It came out of their lungs and throats, and it seemed senseless. Monroe said nothing. We waited. We had our task set out for us. We didn't want the humans to escape again, like they had escaped from Earth at the threat of annihilation. We wanted them to settle down, to build and get contented and easy in their life. We wanted them to allow their spaceships to rust, idling away. We could wait. We had all the time in this timeless universe. We remembered vibrations of quick, sharp voices. Be on the watch, Carlson. There may be nomadic tribes of people on this world. 
There may be strange diseases and stranger animals. We can't have any wars now. We can't afford war. Yes, sir. I'll watch. I'll watch close. And they did watch, but they didn't see anything. They watched in pairs, male and female. They stood on mountains. They strolled in wild brush gullies near naked dry sand river hollows. They smelled the keen-edged air of Zotan like vigorous wine. They saw a sun go up in the sky and come down in the sky. And they saw the stars wheel with cosmic majesty from horizon to horizon. They saw seasons come and go. And at last they were very sure there was no danger. That was what we had anticipated. They thought they owned Zotan. They thought it was theirs for good and all. They made many words about it, printed and spoken. They sang ballads about it, toasted it in liquors, dreamed of it in dreams. We let the first generation and the second generation die of its own accord, from its own inherent diseases, its cultural conflicts and social degenerations. We let them build far and wide their web and shuttle and vice of steel. They put boats on the rivers. They put planes in the skies. They put moles in the ground. They put their dead in the ground, too. And all the while we waited and watched for the proper time. We knew them for what they were. The senseless little motes of electrical mobility called animal life who moved without the cosmic motion, who moved for no reason, in no particular direction, and made chaos with their flesh mouths and their insensible wildness. We knew them for the final fragments of humanity, racing from one world to the next in an insane attempt to survive. And now, when they were settled fine and neat, when they lived in their metal homes and traveled in metal cars, now then, it was the precise time for us to act. The more curious of them may have prophesied something by the simple act of perceiving the quiver of a tree branch, or the tongue of wet salt green lapping along the soundless shores of the sea, or the movement of the wind ever so slight. But those things are so natural. In fact, they are the only natural, rhythmical things in the universe where they have taken their place. All else is unnatural and, therefore, must not long exist. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The night before it happened, we communicated about it. We agreed, all of us, that the invaders would be taken unaware. We, like an amoeba, had taken them into our heart. Now they were the nucleus. All we had to do to destroy them would be to constrict our pseudopodes. One cosmic movement. It was a fine, warm spring morning. The sky was polished and shining, and the ships of men went across that sky like flecks of dream stuff. People were walking and talking and living the warm life. There was laughter, and there were songs. And then the mountains moved. And then the sky constricted like a blue fist. And then the rivers tore wild in a torrent from their ridges. The earth crumbled, trembling. The sun glowed hot and violent. Man and his cities were in the nucleus of all this. We killed them. We crushed them and destroyed them. Every one of them. Every one. Not one escaped. It was a triumph of nature. It was so carefully blueprinted and carried to fruition. We killed them. And now Zotan is quiet again. Quiet in the yellow sun. Quiet in the winds from all the seas and far mountains. Quiet like the spreading snow on hills in winter. Like ice locking the waters of a creek. So quiet. Oh, in the name of God, so quiet. You who read this in some far distant galactic sphere, look about you. Think of the sun and the sky and the world beneath your fleshy limbs. Think long and think deep. Are the rivers running too swiftly this spring? Is the sun too warm in the summer? Are the winds too keen in the autumns? Is the snow too deep in the winter? Perhaps, perhaps you are living upon another Zotan. In 1953, Harry Walton wrote a short story that was published in the March-April 1953 edition of Fantastic, using the pen name Harry Fletcher, A Star Falls on Broadway. The old man got up from his chair, stood there swaying slightly for a moment, then walked slowly toward his wife. She opened her eyes and smiled up at him. Trembling hand grasping the back of her chair, the old man bent down and kissed her. Goodbye, my dear, and thank you. No one in the audience stirred. No one coughed. No one whispered. All were aware that they were witnessing something more than a mere simulation of a character in a play. That feeble, drooping, shaking old man there on the stage with his cracked, quavering voice. Was he, in reality, under penciled wrinkles and white wig, a handsome, vibrant young man of twenty-six? Nonsense. No, there were limits. Not even the great John Iddington. As with most, if not all, geniuses, John Iddington's prodigious talents became evident very early. 
It is told, though this need not be believed, that at the age of four, having somehow procured all the necessary properties, including a pair of stilts, John, in his father's absence, presented himself, disguised as his own father, to his unsuspecting mother. You can imagine, if you choose to accept the story, the expression on the mother's face when, at sound of a heavy tread, she looked up and beheld, standing there in the doorway of the living room, staring at them with open mouth, the letter-perfect twin of the husband who sat nonchalantly in the chair opposite her. This, if it actually happened, was the first of a long and unending series of impersonations, which astonished all who witnessed or heard of them. His professional career more than fulfilled the glittering promise of his amateur days. His first stellar role, his first really prominent appearance, which occurred at the age of fourteen, was in the role of Cyrano de Bergerac. The boy was a master. He could handle much more exacting parts. It is comparatively easy for a child actor to play a character older than himself. A much tougher proposition is the impersonation of a child younger than himself. It is told, and this too rather puts a strain on the credulity, that the boy repeatedly brought the house down with his characterizations, first of a child of three, next of a child of two, and finally of an infant, a girl infant at that, in swaddling clothes. He was heard at this period to bewail the fact that no vehicle existed, or was ever likely to exist, which contained in its cast of characters an unborn babe. And so the years sped, the great thespian passing from one triumph to another, the critics raving and swearing in unanimity that the summit of art had been scaled. Now those same critics, intently watching the old man on the stage, sat there and wondered. Goodbye, my dear, the old man said, and thank you. He turned, totteringly, back toward his easy chair. The curtain began a slow descent as the old man, throwing out his arms, staggered and fell to the floor, obviously dead. The audience, without exception, rose to its feet and thundered applause such as had never been heard under those century-old rafters. The curtain stayed down. The doctor said softly, he's dead. Then suddenly, a startled look came into his eyes. Good God, he muttered. The players and stagehands crowded closer and gasped as the doctor raised Eddington's hand. It was shriveled up and scrawny, claw-like, an old man's hand. The physician stared hard at Eddington's face and then slowly he lifted the white wig. John Eddington's face, beneath the makeup, was deep-lined and dried up. His hair was white. Later examinations showed that his internal organs had undergone the degenerative processes associated with senility. 
John Eddington's art had reached perfection. If you'd picked up a copy of the April 1942 Astounding Science Fiction, you would have discovered this super short story by Isaac Asimov, Time Pussy. This was told me long ago by old Mac, who lived in a shack just over the hill from my old house. He had been a mining prospector out in the asteroids during the rush of 37 and spent most of his time now in feeding his seven cats. What makes you like cats so much, Mr. Mac? I asked him. The old miner looked at me and scratched his chin. Well, he said, they reminds me of my little pets on palace. They were something like cats. Same kind of head, sort of and the cleverest little fellers you ever saw, all dead. I felt sorry and said so. Mac heaved a sigh. Cleverest little fellers, he repeated. They was four-dimensional pussies. Four-dimensional, Mr. Mac? But the fourth dimension is time. I had learned that the year before in the third grade. So, you've had a little schooling, eh? He took out his pipe and filled it slowly. Sure, the fourth dimension is time. These pussies was about a foot long, six inches high, and four inches wide, and stretched somewheres in the middle of next week. That's four dimensions, ain't it? Why, if you petted their heads, they wouldn't wag their tails till next day, maybe. Some of the big ones wouldn't wag till day after. Fact. I looked dubious, but didn't say anything. Mac went on. They was the best little watchdogs in all creation, too. They had to be. Why, if they spotted a burglar or any suspicious character, they'd shriek like a banshee. And when one saw a burglar today, he'd shriek yesterday. So we had 24 hours notice every time. My mouth opened. Honest? Cross my heart. You want to know how we used to feed them? We'd wait for them to go to sleep, see? And then we'd know they was busy digesting their meals. These little time pussies, they always digested their meals exactly three hours before they ate it. On account their stomachs stretched that far back in time. So when they went to sleep, we used to look at the time and get their dinner ready and feed it to them exactly three hours later. He had lit his pipe now and was puffing away. He shook his head sadly. Once so, I made a mistake. Poor little time pussy. His name was Joe, and he was just about my favorite, too. He went to sleep one morning at nine, and somehow I got the idea it was eight. Naturally, I brought him his feed at eleven. I looked all over for him, but I couldn't find him. What had happened, Mr. Mac? Well, no time pussy's insides could be expected to handle his breakfast only two hours after digesting it. It's too much to expect. I found him finally under the toolkit in the outer shed. He had crawled there and died of indigestion an hour before. Poor little feller. After that, I always set an alarm, so I never made that mistake again. There was a short, mournful silence after that, and I resumed in a respectful whisper. 
You said they all died before. Were they all killed like that? Max shook his head solemnly. No, they used to catch colds from us fellers and just die. Anywhere from a week to ten days before they caught them. They wasn't too many to start with. And a year after the miners hit Palace, they wasn't but about ten left. And them ten sort of weak and sickly. The trouble was, little feller, that when they died, they went all to pieces. Just rotted away fast. Especially the little four-dimensional jigger they had in their brains, which made them act the way they did. It cost us all millions of dollars. How was that, Mr. Mac? You see, some scientists back on Earth got wind of our little time pussies, and they knew they'd all be dead before they could get out their next conjunction. So they offered us all a million dollars for each time pussy we preserved for them. And did you? Well, we tried, but they wouldn't keep. After they died, they were just no good anymore, and we had to bury them. We tried packing them in ice, but that only kept the outside all right. The inside was a nasty mess, and it was the inside the scientists wanted. Naturally, with each dead time pussy costing us a million dollars, we didn't want that to happen. One of us figured out that if we put a time pussy into hot water when it was about to die, the water would soak all through it. Then, after it died, we could freeze the water so it would just be one solid chunk of ice, and then it would keep. My lower jaw was sagging. Did it work? We tried and we tried, son, but we just couldn't freeze the water fast enough. By the time we had it all iced, the four-dimensional jigger in the time pussy's brain had just corrupted away. We froze the water faster and faster, but it was no go. Finally, we had only one time pussy left. He was just fixing to die, too. We was desperate. And then one of the fellers thought of something. He figured out a complicated contraption that would freeze all the water just like that in a split second. We picked up the last little feller and put him into the hot water and hooked on the machine. The little feller gave us a last look and made a funny little sound and died. We pressed the button and iced the whole thing into a solid block in about a quarter of a second. Here Mac heaved a sigh that must have weighed a ton. But it was no use. The time pussy spoiled inside of fifteen minutes, and we lost the last million dollars. I caught my breath. But, Mr. Mac, you just said you iced the time pussy in a quarter of a second. It didn't have time to spoil. That's just it, little feller, he said heavily. We did it too doggone fast. The time pussy didn't keep because we froze that hot water so darn fast that the ice was still warm. The next two stories by Philip K. Dick didn't appear in a science fiction magazine when they were written, and they weren't credited to Philip K. Dick. These stories were published in the Berkeley Daily Gazette. Dick was only 13 years old when he wrote The Black Arts, which appeared in the newspaper on Wednesday, September 16, 1942, and credited to Philip 
Dick. The Black Arts. Avery Cooper had an uncle Jeffrey who was a book collector. One day, Avery received a letter from him which said briefly, Avery, I am sending you a book on magic which you will receive in a few weeks. This delighted Avery, for he had always wished to be able to pull rabbits from tall silk hats. When the book arrived, he opened it as soon as the delivery boy had gone. One glance told him that the book was not crisp and new, but very, very old. The words on the faded cover were, The Black Arts. He opened the clasp and turned to the first page, where in block letters was written, Method of Changing into a Werewolf. He quickly turned to the next page, where the words, The Witch's Circle, were printed. The rest of the book contained such charms and spells as turning men into stone, how to summon vampire bats, and ways of calling forth the devil. This was not exactly what Avery had expected. But anyway, he mused, I might be able to sell it at a good price. However, he continued, I might try one recipe before I sell it. Just as a joke, of course. Ways of calling up the devil looked the most interesting to him. So, in a loud voice, he intoned the first incantation on the page. As he finished the last words, there was a loud pounding on the door. Oh, gee gosh, said Avery in a stricken voice. And tossing the book into the blazing fireplace, he ran to his bedroom in search of a suitable weapon to combat the forces of evil he had conjured up. Back with a poker, he opened the door a wee crack. Outside was the delivery boy who had brought the ill-fated book. Another package for you, the boy explained, and handed Avery a neatly wrapped parcel. Then he left. Avery closed the door and sank down into a chair. As soon as his heart stopped trying to crawl up his windpipe, he opened the package. There was a letter and another book. He opened the letter first and read it carefully. It was from his uncle and went like this. Dear Avery, I'm afraid I've made a pretty bad mistake. I've sent you the wrong book a priceless 18th-century manuscript entitled The Black Arts, instead of a book called Simple Parlor Tricks, which I had intended to send earlier. You will find it with this letter. If you would, please send the other book to me. I would be very much relieved, for it forms an important part of my collection. Yours, Jeff. Avery turned and looked at the fireplace and at the ashes of what had once been a priceless book. Philip Dick was a little older when this next story appeared in the newspaper. He had just turned 16 when the Berkeley Daily Gazette published Santa's Return on Tuesday, January 4, 1944. Santa Claus sat at his desk one cold December night making a list of all good boys and girls. Suddenly, a gnome came in. Santa, said the gnome, are you going to leave the North Pole this year? 
I thought maybe because of the war. Santa sighed and began to clean his glasses. No, he said, I don't think so. In fact, I think that I will wait until after the war ends before I visit anyone's house. And that was that. And no one saw Santa away from his workshop at the North Pole until Christmas Eve just after the armistice. It had been many years before the fighting stopped, but Santa was patient and waited. As he flew over Western Europe, he thought that he had never seen such a desolate scene as was France after the war. He could see nothing but ruins of towns, burned fields, and now and then a ragged peasant hunting among the debris for something of value. After a while, Santa saw a small child carrying a bundle of firewood into a ruined building. He landed his sleigh and was about to call to the child, when to his surprise the child began to run from him in fear. Please, he cried over his shoulder, do not shoot a machine gun at me. But I am St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, explained Santa. I have never heard of you, said the boy. Santa continued, every year I give toys to children who are good. Did you do so last year? asked the boy. Well, no, but there was a war, protested the saint. The boy was unconvinced. It was probable that he suspected Santa of being an enemy aviator. He began to cry, and a man came running up, attracted by the whales. The man was dressed in a uniform. Who are you? he demanded of Santa. Why do you frighten this boy with your red costume? Do you play the devil? No, said Santa. I am not the devil. I am St. Nicholas. Let me see your papers. Papers? I have none. Then I must arrest you for a spy, unless this boy knows you and can identify you. Do you know this man, little boy? No, said the boy. He said his name is St. Nicholas but I have never heard that name before. Behind him, Santa's reindeer were moving restlessly, as if they wished to move on. Santa turned and, stepping into the seat, cried, Donner, Blitzen, back to the North Pole. Wait, cried the soldier. Wait! But Santa was gone, back to the North Pole, never to return to a world that had forgotten him. That's Santa's Return by Philip Dick, or Philip K. Dick. Next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, Conger agreed to kill a stranger he had never seen. But he would make no mistakes because he had the stranger's skull under his arm. The Skull, by request, by Philip K. Dick. That's next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast with at least one lost, vintage, sci-fi short story in every episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.